You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part three in our series on John McDougall Stewart, who conducted six expeditions into the Australian interior in the 1850s and 1860s. Today we will focus on his fifth expedition, plus talk about the fate of Stuart's rival, Robert O'Hara Burke, and his attempt to cross the continent before Stuart. My only note is to check out our website, explorerspodcast.com, to see a route of Stuart's journey. That is it for notes. So, last time we left Stuart in Adelaide, South Australia, in October of 1860. He had returned, triumphantly, having reached the center of the continent. This was a great achievement, and people hailed him for his fortitude and perseverance. Stuart had hoped to cross the continent and reach the northern coast of Australia, but he had been thwarted by a lack of water and food, scurvy, and hostile encounters with the Aboriginal people. Now, we have to take a sidetrack at this time and talk about the Victoria Exploring Expedition, historically known as the Burke and Wills Expedition. Led by Robert O'Hara Burke, the expedition had departed Melbourne on August 20th, 1860, just a few days before Stewart had gotten back to Chambers Creek. The Victorian Exploring Expedition, or the VEE as it was called, was a lavishly appointed endeavor costing upwards of £10,000. It consisted of 20 men, 23 horses, 6 wagons, and 26 camels, the latter imported from India. There were 20 tons of supplies, including such luxuries as an oak table and chairs and a Chinese gong. As you can see, it was all very unlike a John McDougall Stewart expedition. The expedition's goal was to go to Cooper's Creek, which was halfway between Melbourne and the Gulf of Carpentaria. Cooper's Creek, by the way, had only been discovered by Europeans in 1845, one of the men on that expedition being John McDougall Stewart. From Cooper's Creek, the team would set off into the unknown and blaze the trail to the coast. By doing this, Victoria wanted to lay claim to a route across the continent, the first step in running a telegraph line from the north to the south coast. Now, the press loved the idea of a race between Burke and Stewart. It was Melbourne versus Adelaide. It got the public hyped up and sold a lot of papers. There's a famous drawing from a newspaper depicting Stewart and Burke racing across the Australian outback. Stewart is this little guy on a horse, while Burke is this big man on a camel. And I want to point out that the rivalry between the colonies was fierce. Each side derided the other whenever possible. The press in Victoria was gleeful when Stuart returned from his expedition, unsuccessful in his attempt to cross the continent. Part of this was spurred by a minor controversy involving Stuart and his journals and maps. If you remember, Stuart's expedition had not been government-financed. 
Stuart's friend and patron, John Chambers, had actually funded most of the expedition. Thus, Stuart turned his documents over to his boss. This led to claims that Stuart had never actually reached the center of Australia and was lying about all that he had done. There were even accusations that Stuart had not even left Adelaide and had simply spent the past months in a wine cellar drinking. It was all very petty, but that's how rivalries can be. No matter, Stuart had had his chance on his fourth expedition to reach the north coast, but he'd been turned back. This gave Burke and the VEE a golden opportunity to steal the prize. Now, despite not crossing the continent, Stuart had come back to a shower of accolades. All of this was great, but Stuart knew that he had unfinished business. Despite the VEE's early departure, Stuart was likely skeptical of Burke's chances to succeed due to his competitor's lack of experience and the cumbersome makeup of the expedition. And thus, as soon as he returned, Stuart dove right into planning a fifth expedition. One of Stuart's biggest backers, pastoralist James Chambers, got the ball rolling by putting together a plan for Stuart to return north with a government-provided contingent. Essentially, this was enough men to protect the company. This would address the issue Stuart had run into on the last expedition, when there had been a hostile encounter with the Waramungu people, forcing Stuart to retreat. The South Australian government would ultimately approve £2,500 to fund the expedition, giving Stuart the large force he needed to complete the crossing of the continent. Stuart's plan was to stage the expedition at Chambers Creek and then proceed from there. His goal was to reach the northernmost point of his last expedition, a place called Attack Creek, and then go northwest towards the Victoria River. Stuart and his team gathered at Chambers Creek at the end of the year. When he finally departed on January 1, 1861, he had 49 horses, a dozen men, and rations for 30 weeks. This was, without question, the biggest expedition Stuart had ever assembled. Stuart set down some very specific guidelines. This included no firing on the natives unless in self-defense. There would be no swearing, no drinking of water without permission, and no abusing the horses. Meals were at a set time, and the men were forbidden from leaving the camp without permission or without weapons. Discipline was strict but fair and very much constructed around using common sense. And thus the men respected Stuart, and they generally heeded his strict guidelines. Author Sarah Murgatroyd in her book The Dig Tree said this of Stuart's discipline, quote, The strict routine meant that each expedition ran like clockwork. The horses in their pack saddles were numbered and divided into equal groups. Each animal learned its place and lined up automatically every morning and evening in the correct order so that the foreman could always locate whatever equipment was needed. End quote. One thing I want to mention regarding Stuart is his reputation as a leader. As I said, people, for the most part, respected the man. This was despite his binge drinking that he indulged in when he was back in Adelaide or any settled area. And that's because once he was in the bush, there was no alcohol. Stuart was all business and people recognized the man's qualities. One of Stuart's men, Benjamin Head, said his boss was a born explorer and added this, quote, You cannot beat the little fellow. No matter who he might be, he had the instincts of a bushman. However foolish he may have been in town, referring to Stuart's drinking, there's not a man in Australia who can say a word against him as a leader in the bush, end quote. I think this is one of the things I like so much about John McDougall Stewart. He was this raging binge drinker, a social misfit, a slight guy no more than 130 or 140 pounds, yet in the field, no one could match his abilities. By the way, I mentioned Benjamin Head, who had been on the last expedition. Well, Stewart had tapped him and William Darton Keckwick to return for this new enterprise. Keckwick would, again, be the expedition's second-in-command. Benjamin Head was given the task of organizing the base camp at Chambers Creek, which he did. However, Head's health was not good. He never fully recovered after the last expedition, and when Stuart set off, 
Head would not be amongst their numbers for that reason. To acknowledge Head's contributions, Stewart would name a mountain and a range after Ben Head, names that still exist to this day. Now, before Stewart sets out, I want to make an important observation, and that is the date of Stewart's departure, January 1st, 1861. Our explorer was setting out at the height of the Australian summer. As you can imagine, this was going to be very risky. But if he could get through these early months, that meant he could be out in the field longer than on previous expeditions. That said, I want to point out that Stewart's competition, the Victoria Exploring Expedition, was facing the same issue. Robert O'Hara Burke and his team had missed a golden opportunity by leaving in August of the previous year and not having the advantage of the cooler winter months. Stewart left Malulu Station, which is on the eastern side of Lake Torrens, on November 29, 1860. He reached Chambers Creek on December 12th. There, he let the horses rest while his team prepared for the journey into the interior. They slaughtered some cattle, jerking the meat, mended saddles, and shooed the horses. Provisions were typical for the time and place. Tobacco, flour, biscuits, dried meat, sugar, that sort of stuff. As for the expedition's composition, in addition to Keckwick, Francis Thring was named the third in command. Thring will be a valued member of the party and is frequently mentioned leading excursions on the upcoming journey north. He and his horse, Globe, demonstrated an uncanny knack for finding water. The party also included a blacksmith to shoe the horses and a saddler, which is a person who maintains and repairs saddles. Stewart departed on January 1, 1861. It was him and a dozen other men, a dog named Toby, and 49 horses loaded with 30 weeks of rations. For those doing the math, that means that Stewart was planning on being the outback for seven months. The expedition headed north, and as you can imagine, the main issues were extreme heat and a lack of water. On January 9th, two men and five of the horses were sent back to Chambers Creek due to the strain of the journey. Two days after that, the dog, Toby, collapsed from the heat and died. As for water, much of it was dried up this time of year. Creeks and ponds and rivers were just dust in the summer months. And that began a nonstop battle against sunburn, chapped lips, sore throats, and stinging eyes. The stinging eyes were because of the constant blowing of dust into the men's eyes. That's easy to imagine. The sore throat was something very common as well, but not necessarily obvious. That would happen because the men sucked in sand all day long, yet due to the lack of water, they couldn't wash it out of their throats, causing them to get scratchy. The expedition reached the Niels River on January 21st, only to find it completely dry. Stewart dispatched exploring parties up and down the river, not reaching water for eight and five miles, respectively. This is a perfect example of why travel in the desert is so dangerous. The men wanted to go north, but the dry river forced them to spend an entire day exploring east and west just to find water. This tired out the men and the horses, but it had to be done. They could not advance without water. The good thing about the advance north was that this was mostly over previously covered trails. Yes, the team had to deviate frequently to find water, but for the most part, this was territory that had already been visited. The expedition continued on into February when they reached the Fink River. Stewart found it dry, but was able to locate some wells used by the Aboriginal people. This allowed them to keep pressing north. Speaking of the Aboriginal people, as usual, there were signs of them, but they shied away from the large party of white men. On February 28th, the expedition suffered a loss when one of the horses ate a poisonous plant and died in the night. Stewart took the loss hard as the horse, named Bennett, had been with him on multiple expeditions and was one of the best pack animals. For the first few weeks of March, Stewart and his team were constantly struggling to find water. There were multiple excursions searching for water sources, most coming back with nothing. The team even resorted to digging in the sand to reach water. The horses suffered the most and had to be frequently rested. 
The lack of rain, by the way, made feed for the horses scarce as well. So they were not only not getting much water, they weren't getting much food either. It's a bad combination. On March 19th, the expedition reached the McDonnell Range, which they had to cross. The tracks from Stewart's 1860 crossing were still visible. It was here that the rains began to finally fall, and not just some nice showers, but torrents of rain pounded the region for days. The men and horses struggled through ankle-deep mud, and the horses got stuck in the water. It was exhausting. Many horseshoes were lost, and the horses became lame during the slog north. The expedition continued onward. They passed landmarks such as Chambers Pillar and the Continent Center, both achieved the previous year. The team pulled into Tennant Creek on April 21st. Now, it was not far from here that Stewart and his men had been attacked on the last expedition. The people saw signs of the local war among the people, but not nearly as many as the last time Stewart had been here. The likely reason is that the Waramungu were simply not in the area at the time. Remember, the aboriginal peoples of Australia often moved around depending on resource availability, meaning food and water. The last time Stewart had been at Attack Creek, it had been late June, not April. Now, I want to remind you that on the previous expedition, Stewart had reached this location and spent most of his energy searching, unsuccessfully, to the northwest, aiming for the Victoria River, which was a known entity. This time, Stewart developed the strategy of sending smaller parties out in search of water and then reporting back to the base camp. It was an advantage of having a larger expedition. And I want to remind you that water, a lot of it, was critical for a party of 10 men and nearly 50 horses. Water holes could be drunk dry by such a large number of animals and not replenish themselves for days or even weeks. So it was essential to find permanent water for the entire expedition. This meant venturing north in a small group for several days, then returning to report what was found. The result was usually little or no water. Stewart spoke about one of these excursions, one time heading out with two other men, seven horses, and provisions for a week. He described a landscape of hard cracked earth, covered in long scrubby grass. This, as you can imagine, made progress slow, painful, and exhausting. On May 6th, Stewart wrote this in his journal, quote, This has been the hardest and most fatiguing day's work we have had since starting from Chambers Creek, end quote. The expedition would lose several horses during this time, mainly due to the heat and lack of water. The horses usually just laid down and gave up, unable to continue. Another issue that arose as Stewart tried to find a route north was the tangled brush that choked the lands to the north. Sarah Murgatroyd, in her book The Dig Tree, said Stewart, quote, found himself entangled in Bullwaddy and Lancewood Scrub, a nasty combination that has been described as nature's attempt to grow barbed wire fence. It is vicious terrain, end quote. Nature's barbed wire. I love that description. By the way, Stewart would add this when talking about this expanse of brush, quote, dismal, dreary forest throughout, end quote. Again, I love that. You can almost taste the bitterness and frustration in those simple words. Anyhow, Stewart was ready to give up hope, and then on May 20th, he came upon a series of water holes, and three days later, he found a larger water source, which he named Newcastle Waters. Newcastle Waters was 240 kilometers, or 150 miles, north of Attack Creek, and it offered an outstanding base to strike out north. The pond had fish, and there were even ducks to be hunted. However, future opportunities were bleak. To the north lay what was dubbed the Sturt Plain. This area was an expanse of shrub, the thickest steward had ever seen. He said it was like trying to push through a hedge, and the horses refused to enter it without serious cajoling. The landscape and lack of water was daunting, Stuart writing, quote, They are a complete barrier between me and the Victoria, end quote. But Stuart was going to try. He and his men would camp for five weeks at the edge of the Sturt Plain, 
trying repeatedly to find a path through the barrier. Of one excursion, he wrote, quote, went into a terrible thick wood and scrub for 11 miles and a half, becoming more dense. It is scarcely penetrable. I sent Thring up one of the tallest trees, nothing to be seen but a fearlessly dense wood and scrub all around. Again, I am forced to retreat through want of water, End quote. Stewart would ultimately mount at least 10 expeditions to the north. At one point, he abandoned the attempt towards the Victoria River and turned his attention to the Gulf of Carpentaria, which is to the northeast. The results weren't any better. And the long spell in the desert was taking its toll on the men and animals. Some of the horses died. Scurvy returned. Stewart's eyes were shot. Dysentery was common. The men's clothing was reduced to rags due to the thorny scrub of the region. Rations were down to four pounds of flour and one pound of dried meat per week per man. What Stuart was doing was not sustainable. Everyone was exhausted and weak, and there was little optimism. Even when it rained, it offered little to the men, as the parched Australian desert simply sucked it all up. Stuart wrote, quote, These plains have swallowed up every drop of rain that has fallen. End quote. The Aboriginal people were also a potential problem. Likely due to the size of Stuart's expedition, they stayed clear of the white men, but in time, they made their presence felt. Fires were started near the camp in the shrub, spooking the horses. At night, Stuart had to set up armed sentries with orders to fire warning shots if there were any problems. Several times, solitary men, out collecting the horses or hunting, had hostile encounters with the Aboriginal people. One man was only saved by firing off his shotgun, which drew some of the other expedition members to his position, forcing the Aboriginal people to flee. But Stuart saw more and more signs of the Aboriginal people, and in greater numbers. It worried him that they would get bold and attack the expedition, and it made the smaller excursions increasingly vulnerable. And thus, on July 1st, Stuart gave orders to pack things up and head south, writing, quote, It is hopeless to proceed further. End quote. The expedition had gotten, at the closest, about 250 miles, or 400 kilometers, from the northern coast. But that's as the crow flies. In reality, it's much further. Stuart was bitterly disappointed at being thwarted yet again, but even as he faltered, he already was wanting to make another go for the coast. When Stuart set off south, he and his men had been in the wild for half a year, 26 weeks. They had brought 30 weeks of food with them, and it was at least 8 to 10 weeks before reaching the first station in South Australia. The expedition plodded home, the men fighting exhaustion and malnutrition, plus scurvy, the entire time. Thankfully, the Aboriginal people did not harass them too much. Stuart pulled into Mr. Levi Station, north of Chambers Creek, on August 31, 1861. After resting for three days, the team continued on to Chambers Creek, which was attained on September 7th. After another three-day rest, the team moved on and reached Malulu Station five days later. Stuart next continued on to Port Augusta and then caught a steamer to Adelaide. His fifth expedition was done. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusion supply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The world that John McDool Stewart returned to upon the completion of his fifth expedition was very different than a year earlier. Exploration fever had ebbed in Australia, and that's because everyone feared for the fate of the Victoria Exploring Expedition, which had been gone for more than a year. And it did not take long before those fears manifested themselves into a full-fledged disaster. Let's back up and talk about Robert O'Hara Burke and the VEE. The expedition had reached Cooper's Creek as planned, but things had not gone well. Questionable decisions by Burke and his team delayed progress. The path north to Menindee and then Cooper's Creek was littered with gear, simply abandoned as it became too cumbersome. One item tossed aside was a supply of lime juice, reputed to fight scurvy. Burke wasn't sold on that idea and left it along the road. Once at Cooper's Creek, Burke decided to proceed north with a small contingent of men. This included William Wills, the expedition's second-in-command, plus two other men, Charles Gray and John King. There were also six camels, one horse, plus supplies for three months. This contingent had a very John McDool Stewart-like makeup. The idea was to move quickly and with little fuss, making for the Gulf of Carpentaria. The rest of the men set up a stockade and supply depot at Cooper's Creek or returned to Menindee. William Bra was left in charge of the depot. Burke left Cooper's Creek in mid-December, meaning he headed into the outback in the hottest and driest time of the year. The result was absolute misery. The four men went north, the temperatures rising to 50 degrees Celsius or 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Water was almost impossible to find, but the party kept going, and then as the men neared the coast, they were blocked by mangrove forests. Mangrove forests, which are often called swamps, are almost impossible to get through unless you have a local guide, something Burke did not have. Burke would try to reach the coast, but on February 9, 1861, he decided he could go no further. The mangrove forest was just too tangled to penetrate. He had gotten to within 20 miles of the ocean. By that point, he had used up two-thirds of his provisions, and he and his men were beginning to suffer badly from malnutrition, exhaustion, and scurvy. The march back to Cooper's Creek was a deadly slog. Instead of the heat, they now had to contend with the tropical monsoon season. Eventually, the camels began to die, as did one of the men, Charles Gray, the result of dysentery. Bert, Wilson King, and the last two surviving camels reached Cooper's Creek on the evening of April 21st, but when they got there, they were greeted by heartbreak. When Burke had left Cooper's Creek back in December, he had ordered William Bra to remain there for 13 weeks. Bra ended up waiting 18 weeks before actually leaving, and the reason he left was that he and his men were low on supplies and suffering from scurvy as well. Bra had left a cache of supplies at the depot, buried next to a kulaba tree. Into the tree trunk, Bra had carved the words, Dig. This was done to prevent the aboriginal people from finding the cache. The tree is the famed dig tree. Well, in the cache was flour, oatmeal, sugar, and rice. Plus, there was a note from Bra, which said that he had departed on the morning of April 21st. This was the great tragedy of the expedition. Bra had only departed nine hours earlier. Burke and his men, who were exhausted, were shattered. Well, Burke, Wills, and King, who were in no shape to catch up to Bra, spent two days eating food and regaining their strength. And then the three men set out. However, instead of heading south toward Menindee, Burke elected to go west towards the cattle station at Mount Hopeless. It was 150 miles, or 240 kilometers, through the desert. But it was closer than Menindee. 
Plus, the men could follow Cooper's Creek toward the station, giving them a supply of water, at least for part of the journey. Also, and this is critical, Burke reburied the supplies, along with his journals and a note explaining his plans, but he didn't leave any sort of indication that he had been there. He didn't carve into the tree his initials and the date they had arrived. He left everything almost exactly as he had found it. And because of this, the tragedy continued. On the march to Menindee, William Brow was greeted by a relief column led by William Wright. He and Wright thus rushed back to Cooper's Creek on the chance Burke had returned. There they found nothing. Everything looked exactly the same, and thus the men departed without digging up the supply cache. Brow returned to Melbourne, only able to say that Burke was still missing. And that sparked a public outcry, and it was not long before five different rescue expeditions were organized. By the way, when Stewart was told of the disappearance of Burke and his men, he immediately offered to organize and lead a relief expedition to help with the search. But with all that was going on, Stewart's aid was not needed. And so, as those who have listened to the Burke and Wills expedition series know, there was mostly tragedy in the cards. The three survivors were suffering badly from scurvy, and then they tried to make a bready food, which the Aboriginal people ate, from the Nardu plant. But they didn't know how to make the Nardu properly and didn't leach out of it the toxins. Thus, they all got sick. At the end of June 1861, William Wills died. Robert O'Hara Burke followed a day or two later. John King would survive by hooking up with some of the local Yadjuwanda Aboriginal people who took him in. Just as Burke and Wills were passing away, Alfred Howard led an expedition north from Melbourne, aiming for Cooper's Creek. On September 15th, Howitt's party found John King with the Yanjuwanda. King led Howitt to the bodies of Burke and Wills. John King ultimately returned to Melbourne, but in reality, he never fully recovered from the trek across Australia. He died in 1872 at the age of 33. The Burke and Wills expedition was mostly a disaster, complete with so many bad decisions and unlucky turns. Seven men had died, including the two leaders, Burke and Wills. The expedition had technically not reached the north coast of Australia, but everyone agreed it was close enough. So if you look at the history books today, it says that Burke and his team were the first people to cross the continent. John King is the first person to cross the continent and return. I talk a lot about the Burke and Wills expedition because it had some major influences upon exploration at this time in Australia. First, the exploration fever that had swept the continent a few years earlier had faded. Burke and Wills were heroes, but at what cost? Was it worth it to send all these young men to their deaths, all to fill in the blank space on the map? Second, let's remember why Burke and his team had gone across the continent. They were there to blaze a path for the telegraph. Well, that didn't look too promising. They needed permanent water sources along any such route, something Burke had not found. Plus, there was the whole issue with getting through the mangrove forest. That had not been solved. And third, the failure of Victoria was now an opportunity for South Australia. Granted, after the deaths of Burke and Wills, some in Adelaide were not in a rush to do more exploring. But their man, John McDougall Stewart, had come within a few hundred miles of the coast. Why not try again? I mean, the telegraph route was still a really important goal. And thus the government, after some hemming and hawing, gave £2,000 to Stewart for a sixth expedition, on the condition that he took a scientist with him. The remaining funds would come from Stewart's longtime backers, the Chambers brothers and William Fink. And so, in the fall of 1861, John McDougall Stewart began to put together his sixth expedition. This would consist of 10 men and more than 70 horses. Stewart was determined to, once and for all, reach the northern coast of Australia. But that story will be for next time, when we conclude our series on John McDougall Stewart, one of the great explorers of Australia. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I want to wrap up by saying thanks to you, our listeners. And thank you to everyone who helps out. 
It can be as simple as writing and asking questions or saying thank you or sending me suggestions for future topics or helping me with pronunciations or whatever. It's all great. If you ever want to send me a message, just go to our website, explorespodcast.com, and hit the contact link. You can fill out the form, or my email is on the page. You can just shoot me a direct message. And I also want to say thank you to all those who help out the show financially. People like Randy, Dan, Catherine, Chris, Donnell, Robert, Rudy, Gregory, Eileen, Andrew, Benjamin, Eric, Cameron, Christopher, Collier, Craig, David, Eamon, Elizabeth, George, Susan, John Paul, Mark, Peter, Mitchell, Philip, Ralph, Thomas, and many, many others. Thank you so much. It is because of your support that I can make as many episodes of the podcast as I do. So thanks. Anyhow, that is it for today. Thanks again for being with us. Take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Please go to airwavemedia.com for other great shows, including The Purpose Show and Tumble, a science podcast for kids. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.